Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, if you want to make sure to receive webinars and other videos, please go to rachelbernsteintherapy.com. It is another way for me to be sharing the information that I know with the public. So please take advantage of it. Go to rachelbernsteintherapy.com and click on webinars. You'll find a lot of links. Check them out. And so for today, we have Jay Cole and Sonia Morris. They are survivors of a place called Believer's House Worldwide Ministries. It's in Norfolk, Virginia. They are leading a campaign, among others, to share their stories of the terrible spiritual, physical, psychological, and sexual abuse they experienced and witnessed from Pastor Bernard Cheney. Survivors are seeking justice for the many children victimized at the church's school called Voice of Believers Academy. Bernard is under investigation but has not been charged with any crimes yet. Thanks to Jay and Sonia for sharing with us their inspiring story of survivorship and their passionate fight for justice. The more they talk about this and the more they and others share their stories, the more there will be an opportunity for justice. Here are Jay and Sonia now. So I am very happy to have Jay and Sonia with me today. It is so nice to be able to to meet you, to talk to you, to hear your perspectives, to hear your story. It's always really nice to to have a couple people on at once because not only do you get to have different perspectives, but I also like kind of listening in on the dialogue between the two of you. So feel free to chat with each other you know, and confer with each other about things and share what you thought was same or different. You know, when, when I when I talk to people who have been involved in similar things, what's so interesting to me is that you can be involved in this exact same thing and have different experiences and have different emotions about it based on your wiring, based on how you were treated. Sometimes gender differences also play a part in how you're treated and what the experience was like for you. So I'm very happy to have you both on. If you don't mind just spending a moment introducing yourself and just talking a little bit about you and also what brings you to the show today. Hi, my name is Sonia. I have three children, five grandchildren. What brings me to the show? Um, I was in a cult. <laughs> I was part of a cult, myself and my family. And the name of it, just so people know. Believe is House Worldwide Ministries. It's been around for... Uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of decades. I was part of that ministry from 2002 all the way up to 2011. I was about probably 38, somewhere around in there, close to 40. I had just got married. Uh, we had get, just got married. We was like months into being married and we got stationed to Norfolk. My husband was in the Navy. Yeah, we visited the church a couple of times. But I was still part of my aunt's church, which was in a different part of Virginia, Suffolk, Virginia. My aunt's church was like really, really nice, but they would send a limo for us and take us out to eat and the whole works. But I wasn't interested in that church. I don't. I just had some, a thing with family church. I really would 
really care too much about going to family church. So um, I got invited to the lady's house in a grocery store by a, a, a young lady. I visited maybe three times. I went to a praise party, um, which was weird, really weird. I brought my mom with me and he um, gave my mom like $300, like just for no reason. Wow. And my mom was excited. I wasn't. It didn't like make me excited or whatever. The second time I went, I think they had a flea market. They were looking at me weird because they all had on them long skirts. And I was like with my little short skirt on. It wasn't short, short, but it wasn't long to my ankles. So they were looking at me a little weird. I felt a little uncomfortable, but you know, it's fine because I grew up in a church where they were long dresses or whatever. So it didn't bother me at all. And the third time that I went, which was a Bible study, then the Bible study was everything that I needed because previous, before I got married, I had got raped and um, I was battling with depression. I was battling with depression really, really, really bad. It was like, I was fine until the kids went to school. When the kids went to school, I went back into that depression. And when they came home, I was that perfect mom. We would never even know that I was going through all that. My goodness. So I was looking, seeking for deliverance when I got there. And um, it was a deliverance ministry. They had that particular Wednesday that I went, they were doing something called behind the veil. I don't know if Jay remembers that, where they had the veil up and then they, they would pray for people and people would go underneath the veil. And people, I mean, I got set free that day. I've never battled with depression since that day. I still visited as time. I didn't become a member probably until 2003, going into 2004. I didn't become a member right away because my husband was still overseas. And the pastor said that I had to get my husband's consent. Bernard said I had to get my husband's consent in order to become a member. Um, so it took a while for me to become a member. Okay. Interesting. Just about that, having to get your husband's consent. I'm so curious about that. I think that was just to see if I had a husband. I think that was just to see if I was married. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So very interesting. So there's a lot that we can go back to with all of that, but the idea of deliverance and getting healing and, and it really targeting what you needed. Um, I'm sure it's going to make you feel like, ah, I have found my place. Yes. Right. And then when you feel you, when you feel taken care of in that way, also you can lower your defenses. Right. And there are a lot of things, right. In retrospect, they're like, there are things I ignored that I probably shouldn't have because I was getting this, you know? True. Okay. So interesting. It happens so often, but on the one hand, even though it turned out to not be a good place, I am really happy that you had that sense that you could be cared for. I'm sorry you went through a horrible experience. Okay. So thank you, Sonia. So we'll come back to your story in a moment. Jay, do you want to introduce yourself? First of all, I want to say thank you so much, Rachel, for allowing us to be on your show to tell our story. Um, It's a story that I think needs to be told and uh, it is a present day fight. And so, you know, as small as this ministry is, It had a lot of power over people and as small as it is, it shouldn't have gone on this long without some type of intervention. Uh, So um, I'm a Navy veteran. We joined the church in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I started really going in 2001. My ex-wife, Sheree McClendon, and she has her own story and, and we all work together presently. So I don't mind telling her portion of the story because it interlocks with mine. And so we've already discussed that. She started going before I did. I was in the Navy. I was out to sea. And this was like in 2000. And so, you know, we didn't have like 
email was, you know, snail mail. She kept sending me letters. And, you know, when I talked to her on the phone, she was so excited about this ministry that she had gotten invited to um, by her mom. Now, this ministry was uh, we lived in an apartment at, you know, in those years. And it was, uh, you know, a short you could you could walk. You, you know, it's a short drive, but you could really walk where the, the church formerly was at. Um, it was the big like the first building outside of a house. So it moved from an apartment to, you know, to someone's house and then from someone's house to a small storefront style church. And so I was like, okay, great. You know, because we, um, we were looking for a quote church home, unquote, my ex wife, uh, Sheree and I both, uh, um, black Americans and, you know, in our culture, church often helps to define us. Um, and it's used as a centerpiece, which, uh, you know, much of your life would revolve around. You may have a lot of inconsistencies in life, but one of the things that would be consistent is your attendance in church or having a church home, so to speak. There are a lot of things that go along with that. Uh, it's, it's almost like a game. Once you're in, you're in, you can't, do what they call, uh, you know, quote, church hopping. If you're in one church, it, sometimes it can even be frowned upon on, on visiting. And so if you're outside of a church, it's almost a reflection. What I mean by outside, you don't have a church home. Um, it's almost like a reflection on you as a person, like your your character, like in an indirect way. Like, what do you mean? You don't, you know, you don't have a church home. You need to find somewhere and, you know, find Jesus or find God because, like, the world is going to, you know, get the best of you. And there is some wisdom in having, you know, a connection with people that maybe, you know, your family isn't around, but we can, you know, kind of uh, take comfort in believing that these people have the best intentions at heart you know, for us. And so in 2001, I came from, a, I was on a six month deployment and, you know, you know, from 2000 to 2001, I came home in 2001. And my first interaction, my first encounter was like a Bible study. And uh, in those days, the church was, the the uh, congregation was small, was, you know, less than a hundred people went. I think it's important to kind of describe the landscape uh, and, you know, the folks who went. These were young people. You can count on one hand who was over 40. It was those uh, who had uh, a background of, you know, Black minority background, but it was multicultural. There, there were people from all walks who went and, uh, you know, almost all military are adjacent to military. And that's very important because the structure of the cult which didn't start out as a cult. And, and uh, I don't think anybody just wakes up one day and wants to join a cult. I, I, I think they are lured in. And so uh, Bernard Cheney, who is the cult leader, he called himself a pastor, a prophet, an apostle, all of the grandiose titles that could be had, he, he had them. So um, it was very communal, very familial, but also very disciplined. And it was something that we were familiar with because we were in the military. So the structure of 
the ministry was rank and file, like like a lot of cults. So this ministry, and I, it's okay, I guess, to say that at the time because it wasn't like full blown. It was really like a ministry. You had lay people, and then they had uh, the next level. I guess would be you know uh, leadership in you know what they call auxiliary groups, which you know help take care of the church or help assist in running the operations as it pertains to the services. And then you had leadership who had titles. So titles are, you know, deacon or missionary or elder. And you had these ministers. And then you had one pastor, Bernard Cheney, one and one only that no other, you know, people could be in charge at all. Even from the beginning, there were area ministers, but he had the final say so. There was no him not knowing or him not having the final say in things, no matter how small it was. And really, that was from the beginning. And that was something that as young people, you know, uh, having uh, that tinge of innocence, that's not something that you knew to detect. Because, you know, you assume that if you go to a church that these people have your best intentions at heart and are not here to harm you. Well, the love bombing uh, starts, you know, so the first time I go, you know, everyone is like, oh, yes, your wife told me so much about you. People you don't even know wanting to come and hug you and shake your hand and everything like that. The love bombing occurs. So, you know, at the beginning, it was all about ministry and fun, fun and ministry, going to the pool. You know, he had a you know, little pool at his at his home that uh, Bernard Cheney did. Playing volleyball is a big thing. You know, it's a huge thing. I'm sure if it if it doesn't sound familiar, stop me. Okay, it, these people. I'm he, I'm sure he, he did. He, uh, it's amazing how th- this stuff works. Uh, control works, right? It's very insidious, um, and you can't really t- you know recognize it until you're just it, the the hooks are in you. But I went through that, and then there was a. Uh, Sunday, and I'm not sure if it was the second time. I think maybe the third time that I went. And this is uh, the smoke and mirrors portion. It was a prophecy, right? So their version of prophecy may not be, uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar. I'm not sure uh, your 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 listeners, but in that church and many churches, you know, that I went to previously. You know, prophecy is telling telling you something that you would have no idea about, something very personal, where this person, he or she could not possibly have known except God told the person, right? And so he said something about, you know, so I used to, uh, you know, play when I was a teenager. Uh, My mom was a minister, God rest her soul, in, in a church. And uh, I I played uh, the organ for the children's choir, right? So he he mentioned something like that. So you know, um, at the, my wife at the time, Sheree, I asked. I said, "Did you tell him anything about me playing an instrument or anything like that?" And she said, "No, no, I didn't." And I'm like, "Well, how would he know that, right?" So. These are the things that will attract you and the uncomfortable truths that we have, not just in this cult, but in in many places that lure you that if you believe in the supernatural, whether it's actually supernatural or not, it's convincing. And so you latch on because you feel that 
this is a difference maker. It's the difference between going to a restaurant that serves New England clam chowder and it tastes like it comes out of a can and the New England clam chowder that if you're like from, you know, New England, actually like how Sonia is, these are the ingredients. This is the real clam chowder. So why go to get regular clam chowder when I can get the clam chowder that I know or I feel this is the real deal, right? So it's kind of like that. And so I was like lured in that way. Um, we Again, we were looking for consistency in a church or finding a church home. Um, so I started to check off the boxes. Uh, my ex-wife really liked the church. It checked that box off. It had young people. It was a hip church. Like Sonia mentioned the praise party. The praise party was where they played upbeat, uh, you know, modern day church friendly songs that you would not find at the time at that time in a sanctuary or in a church. It was it was geared toward young people or young people at, at heart and plenty. It was high energy dancing and, you know, that uh, Bernard Cheney doing things that um, we're not used to, you know, a pastor doing or someone in that position doing. So you felt like it was cool. He knew, you know, again, we were in the military. So there were things that he could say that you could immediately relate to, especially in the Navy. That can't be underscored. The fact that the luring by familiarity, it, it tends in your mind to blend together the authority of church and the authority of the military. And it's not, it shouldn't always be the same, this rank and file that you, it's almost like to be closer to God, you got to get this rank. And it's not, it's not the way it works, but it's the way that it w- worked there, both directly and implied. So that's how uh, I begin to go because really my family at the time, I'm from California. This was in Virginia. I had none of my family on the East Coast, but my ex-wife, she had her family. So, you know, my extended family, my in-laws were going there. And I'm kind of a go with the flow person. And I was like, okay, you know, I can, you know, I'll make the best out of the situation. And so that's how I went. And again, again, the love bombing, having fun, doing things that we we weren't used to uh, was kind of our foot in the door for myself. And I, and I think there are different eras. And so for the era that I was in, that's kind of how, you know, you joined and you became a part. Okay. So interesting. So much of what you're talking about too, is it being very appealing and nice and fun. And yeah, there are a lot of people who will talk about where they got involved in activities where it didn't seem that it was spiritual at all. It was really about connecting the community and also having these moments where you're feeling high, like a dopamine rush. And then I think what happens is you feel like you can feel indebted to these people or this pastor who is giving you a chance to have community, especially if you've been pulled away from, you know, California, et cetera. But for both of you to have the sense that you're being given something here that you haven't been given somewhere else or something you really need, whether it is like Sonia was talking about feeling healed from a trauma and, you know, something horrible. And for you, Jada, feel kind of warmly welcomed and connected and have fun. And also the the hipness also makes a big difference. There are a lot of people who get involved in 
religious groups and really like that they're finding people of similar ages. Uh, and it also gives them a sense that they're involved in something cool. So the hipness actually really helps a lot. And it can also make you not necessarily notice what you need to be noticing. I find it always so interesting when someone who is in a position of authority in a spiritual way calls themselves certain things. And in retrospect, you can think, okay, that's a red flag. But it's fine, I think, if someone calls himself a priest or a pastor, those are titles. But as soon as you call yourself a prophet, right, that's when you you feel like, okay, this is a slippery slope here. It, this is someone who really thinks that, you know, they speak for or God speaks through or, you know, they are anointed in some fashion. An apostle, I mean, the, the, these are elevated titles. And most people walking around would have too much humility, I think, to call themselves a prophet. But so there are some people who are very comfortable doing it because I think they really do believe it. And one of the things I hope we come back to is how much you feel, you know, that Bernard believes his own, mm, uh, believes the lie or believes in himself to that degree or how much of it is for show. So thank you, Jay. I want to go back to, to Sonia for you to be able to talk about your experiences there. Also your experiences with your marriage. Sometimes it affects how, you know, marriages and relationship to kids, how much time you get to spend with your kids. I'm just wondering how life changed for you once you got involved, because usually there's an expectation of getting 100% involved and spending many hours a week devoted to this? Well, it's kind of um, crazy. My husband came back from overseas and um, I found out he had cheated on me in Italy. We had area ministers back then. When I first got to the church, the pastor came to me and he was like, it's anything you need. Don't go to the area minister. Come straight to me. And I was like, ah, no, that sounds like a little weird. I said, nah, um, I came from a family of pastors. I'm not going to come straight to you. If everybody else has to go through the area minister, I'm going to go through my area minister. So I went through, through my area minister and I was explaining to them what happened. I kid you not, I wouldn't even say a month later they made him a deacon. They made him a deacon. And um, then I remember him, him coming up to me and saying, yeah, you're trying to figure out why you're not a missionary. You know, you're not ready. You're not ready. He's ready. You're not. And I kept on questioning God. I'm like, God, he was just cheating on me in Italy. <laughs> And you made him a deacon. It just didn't make sense to me, but he just kept telling me that I need to get some things straight. Um, in the meantime, he kept asking me to come work for him at the daycare. And I had my own daycare business. Had about eight or nine children that I, and I did childcare in my home. So I guess kept telling him, no, I'm not ready to come volunteer. You know, volunteer means you ain't getting paid. Not that I really thought of it in that way. It's just that I'm like, nah, man, I came from a... Like I said, it came from a, a family of preachers and pastors and prophets and all that. So it's not exciting to me, you know? No. I said, no. So every time he would see me, he would say, Sonia's not serious about kingdom business. Then it went to, don't talk to Sonia. Don't talk to her because I'm disobedient. So that happened for a while. And then when me and my husband, we always dressed alike. So whatever color the whole family would wear. We had on red, the whole family would have on red. So one day we came in late to church and he said he blasted us over the mic about our outfits and we just wanted to show off our outfits. And I was just like, what in the world is going on? Yeah, it went from that to it got worse as time went. 
Oh, oh, I definitely want to hear about getting worse. I just wanted to say something before you, before this goes way south and downhill. I think it's so interesting when people are elevated who have not behaved in life in the way that where they should, according to even spiritual communities, be given respect, should be seen as models within the community. And if you have been toiling, you know, you have been faithful and you've been taking care of your family, there would be no reason for him to be elevated, not you. And certainly what message does that send? It says something to me about how there were things that didn't matter to the pastor. And so it makes you wonder if that's something he was doing too, right? Because he then thought it was okay and may have even respected it in your husband um, enough to elevate him. The other part about you wearing all the same color as a family, which I think is actually pretty cute. I think, you know, having someone defame you, first of all, on the microphone at uh, um, either a service or Bible study, something that's church related, first of all, should never happen. You should be able to dress however you want to dress and do whatever you want to do. I wonder if the connection that it showed you had with your family was something that threatened him. And that's why he had to put it down because you were all somehow wearing the same, meaning you're all connected to each other. And he probably wanted to be the most important person in everyone's life. Um, so I just, I'm wondering why he would attack you for that. We stopped dressing it like at that point. May, may I um, interject? Yeah, please. So you asked why he would do that. It's to break your spirit. Oh, he broke it. I can't say that he's uh, intellectual by any means, but he's smart in that he's very calculating and he knows how to read people. So the things that we don't really pay attention to the whole time, he is casing you. He is seeing how you will react to certain behavior, uh, the cause and effect of things. And he wants to know how far he can push you. I do remember uh, she and her husband used to dress alike a lot. I vaguely, there's so much mess that happened, but I I think I do vaguely recall that, that instance. And, you know, what, one of the things is that uh, he will later use that. so, So, you know, very rarely will he not, repurpose or get multiple uses out of out of certain things or people. He will later use that to say, if you are humble enough to take that, uh, what he calls um, rebuke, right? Then you are humble enough to uh, get in a position of leadership. And what that does is, first of all, allows you to believe that uh, this degradation was for a purpose. Because you know, the backstory is that I'm God's mouthpiece and I'm very spiritual. I talk to God. God talks to me and God can, you know, tells me that when you're ready to do something and, and when you're not. And so I don't want to go too far, but that's to break, it's, it's to break your spirit, but also to use it to, for him to do, because there, there are things that people, and I'm not, a, I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, I, I do know that People who are sociopaths operate on a different set of rules. And I, I tell people it's not supposed to make sense to you. If you put your hand out, you first meeting someone and to shake their hand and they come to you, you know, and looks like in love and greeting and then they slap you in your mouth. Right. That's it doesn't make sense to you at all. But 
a sociopath, if they want to do that, they feel like they can do that and they would do it might be for kicks and giggles. It might just see to how, how you react, but you would never, it wouldn't even cross your mind to do it because, because why? Right. So, so, you know, with, with Bernard, it's always to kind of break your spirit, to push you and using smoke and mirrors, meaning that, you know, there are certain things that God told me when, when in reality, he operated on secrets and would ask people about other people and tell, don't, don't tell nobody I told you, you know, or we, we had this, this conversation and you believe because he's not going to tell you that over the microphone or anything like that, you're going to get you behind closed doors. And God, God already told me that this happened or this, and you're like, what, what now? the first couple of times he's got you lured in. So you think that everything after that goes unchecked. So you think you really do think that God is just constantly speaking to this person about all of your personal business. And um, a lot of time, again, it was just the smoke and mirrors. So, you know, again, that one incident is to break your spirit, to show superior, to make him feel superior. Like I can talk to these people anyway, that I want. And also not only that, to add insult to injury, to turn around and use it to compel you to go even further. Like you took this abuse for a reason because you can take it. You're strong enough to take it. Wow. It's so interesting. Thank you so much for that explanation. I want to be able to come back to, you know, when I, I, Sonia, I heard when you said, oh yeah, he broke my spirit. So I want to go back to that. Uh, First, I want to talk about though, just briefly, this idea of him coming up to you and saying, God told me this, or somehow he knows something about you and and the whole idea of secrecy too, which is a very popular thing. And people ratting each other out and collecting data on each other to give to the leader also. So, which is often the case, right? And yeah, I mean, everyone's like the spy, not everyone, but a lot of people are used as spies. A lot of people will not know that they're being played in that way. And exactly as you're saying, Jay, if you don't have that kind of way of thinking, if you're not a sociopath and thank goodness you're not, you're not going to know that someone could actually be up to these things, especially someone who is a religious leader, who you're going to be holding up to a certain standard. There are some churches I've heard about where they have listening devices, where they have secret cameras, where they they will get people's information and then the pastor will say, God told me. Well, no, actually not. Also, other people have been sort of planted to start to strike up conversations, to ask you questions, and you think they care. And they might actually individually care, but they're on a mission. And then they give that information to the pastor who then can say, God told me. And then you think, oh, how did he know that? And it's all this shell game. And, you know, and it's so wrong. I mean, it's so wrong on any day, but especially in a church. And so then, Sonia, to go back to you for a moment, when you were saying that, you know, he broke you, what else happened that really set you down in kind of a low space emotionally? Well, after that happened, um, in that same service, he said that I couldn't be a missionary because until I can be a better wife. No, he said, you think you hear from God? You don't hear from God. You don't hear from God. And I had a very close relationship with God where I did hear from God. He said, you think you hear from God? Until you can be a better mother, a better wife, a better servant, then, you know, you'll be fit to be a missionary. And I... I was just bold. I was just like, I don't want to be a missionary. You know, I'm okay the way I am. I don't want to be one. And so at that point, 
everything just went downhill. Um, downhill as far as our lives. Um, my husband was, of course, the deacon. I became pastor's aide where I would stay at the church from whatever time church was over to one, two o'clock in the morning. And I'm not even a leader. I'm just pastor's aide. They would raise money all night long. Then it went to coming home and not having a TV, not having, we had a big screen. That was all the TVs were going. All the, uh, back then was VCR tapes, I believe it was. VCR tapes, the VCR was going, the VCR tapes were going. It just went on and on. I had lots of jewelry. My husband said we have to donate our wedding bands. My mother would give me um, her old wedding bands every year. So I had a lot of diamonds. I had a lot, I used to, back in the day, be a drug dealer. So I had lots of diamonds, lots of gold. I had a lot, a lot of everything. Within three months, everything was gone. Everything was gone. We were carless. We had three cars, carless, homeless, all the lists you can think of. Um, carless, foodless, electric. We didn't have electric. We didn't have running water. I would go to the gas station to get water, to bathe in, to flush the toilet. This was like early in uh, being in ministry. It was bad. It was bad. Okay. So with you losing everything, that wasn't even the, the worst of it. Oh my goodness. So just this idea too, that happens where, you know, what, sometimes people will ask me the definition of, of a cultic group and how it's different from a religion. And of course, I think about the deception. That's a number one to me that you are really never told ahead of time, sort of what, what the plan is for you and also how much you're going to be sacrificing that you had no idea about from the start. Often that the rules also only apply to the followers and only some followers, and they never apply to the leader. So you have a lot of people who are giving everything over and the leader's living very high on life and having everything. And so a lot of other definitions as well. And often that there's no governing body body that, that these churches operate independently. So no one is watching and the pastor doesn't have to answer to anyone. So we've already like touched on so many of the definitions, really interesting. So so now to go back to you, Jay, and then we'll come back, Sonia, of course, to your story, because I want to, there's a lot more there. So Jay, for you, were you feeling that things were being taken away from you or you were having to give up so much of your life for this church as well? Definitely. If you were in leadership, you had no choice but to be all in. And by all in, I mean, I remember in one day giving my entire house away, the contents, the furniture. Uh, Sonia mentioned that there was a flea market and the flea market was a way for members to bring in things. It's not like a consignment. They didn't get a cut of it. It was a hundred percent donation. The church took 100% of the proceeds. Okay. There was this uh, correlation that the more you sacrifice, the more that you show that you can be a leader or that you can be. But in reality, it's how far are you willing to go? If I tell you something, how far will you will you take it? And again, Bernard Cheney is very good at reading people, filling them out, very calculating, patient, and is willing, from what I've seen, to wait it out, but apply pressure in certain areas to kind of move you along. So for me, because at that time, uh, and again, the way it was structured, if you had a title as in leader, you were doing well, like God was using you. In the background, he would always tell us that 
this ministry is going to be great and we're not always going to struggle. And because at the time in the early 2000s, the church it was expanding, was growing so fast, so fast. And so because of things like that, you believed it. You thought, wow, yeah, we can see. And it, it had a lot of promise. It did. It really did. And the things that we did had promise. And like you said, there was no governing body. There wasn't a bishop or any type of presbyter over him. It was just him and the things that he says. And, you know, like so many other cults, it's because God told me. So it makes it right. No matter what it is. I recently um, watched this series that was based on the Lafferty brothers called Under the Banner of Heaven. Every time, uh, you know, one of the Lafferty brothers would be asked, uh, why are you doing this? Because Heavenly Father wills it. Heavenly Father says it so. It's always Heavenly Father told us, told me, told, uh, you know, we, we represent the chosen. And anytime anyone says this is the way and there's no other way, if it's not already a cult, it's probably going to turn into a cult at some point. You may be familiar with this term, but um, there's a term called the sunk cost fallacy, where you could feel like you're in over your head or this isn't the way and you're like, you're ready to leave. But again, you know, this person has a way of keeping you, whether it's by collateral given, you know, like as in secrets told putting you in a position of poverty, cutting you off from your family, which you would, again, ironically have to humble yourself to go back to your family. Or it could be like me, where he got, this is how he got me to continue, right? Because I'm like, this is crazy. This is too much. I'm not going to keep doing this, right? And he would say, imagine you giving up your position. And for us, if you're in leadership, there's no Leadership is you're no longer a brother or sister. You have a title. There is no just being a brother or sister because they're going to make it. He's going to make it uncomfortable for you. He's going to make it weird. He's going to say things. When I say over the mic, I mean during service and service may not even just be church service. It could be one of the many events. You're going to always be able to hear his voice, whether it's through a microphone or a bullhorn or something, exercising his authority. He's going to make it weird for you. Okay. He used to say, imagine you just leaving and next month the church just blows up and everything, all of the work you've been putting in, you know, he used this Bible verse, another man takes on your labor. And that used to get me. And I'm like, I did, I have put a lot in and I've been following this long and this far for a reason. I might as well stick it out a little bit more. For me, material things weren't a big deal for me to give away. It was a big deal to my ex-wife, of course, <laughs> because it's all about how, how I, what can I get out of this person? Right. It was, it was the money part and, you know, giving up, he, he knows that I'm really not going to question it because I really wasn't a big, a big money person, but, you know, coming into leadership and, and staying, it was all tact, you know, all tactical. It had an uncanny way of making you feel important and making you feel worthless at the same time. Mm. I'm so glad you brought that up. That is a very common thing. And I want to make sure to write that down. So important, worthless at the same time. 
and you leave every interaction feeling worse about yourself or that you failed or that you need to try harder or you have to prove something about yourself, but still you're supposed to feel special being a part of this church, probably because it is the way, it's the answer. If you have interactions with the pastor, you're going to feel special, elevated, and at the same time put down. It is a constant emotional roller coaster. And it's very hard to then find your footing. It's very hard to know how you're supposed to feel at any given moment. It's like, it's almost like you then give it over to the pastor to decide how you're supposed to be feeling at any given moment based on how you're treated and what you're told about yourself. I'm sure people were just not feeling like they could kind of master the system or even feel good about them or confident about them. And what did that do to Jay, to your own feeling of your own self-concept? How did you feel about you? Well, I felt like I was on a personal journey anyway. In my mind, I thought I don't think I ever fully adopted. I'm going to be in this area at this church forever. Even if I was a part of this ministry in the future, I wasn't I didn't like Virginia. Part of it I didn't like Virginia. I was not a fan of it. My family, you know, which I I, I always kept unlike a lot of unfortunately a lot of people, I always kept ties with my family. It just happened to be thousands of miles away. That was an issue. I just felt like because I was on my personal journey that this is a this is an issue. This is rough, but it's for a moment. And I don't know what God has in store for me, but it's better, it's greater than this moment. And so that's what kind of it kind of kept me pushing. It kind of kept me moving. And so for me the humility was taking that abuse, but also never letting go of the confidence that I had in myself. And I think that made all the difference in the world on how I bounced back at leaving, which my story I think is very unique on how I left than any, anyone else, uh, you know, but yeah, once I was in leadership, I saw a lot of things and I saw the frailty, the humanity of the leadership, but also that cult leader. And again, I was part of that leadership. And so, you know, I have to, I have to eat that, you know, I have to eat that crow, you know, here's the thing I do want to say really quick. Every cult leader has accomplices. They have actors. Uh, So I'm an attorney now. And so I'm going to, I'm probably going to put things in, in legal terms. So when I say accomplices and actors, people who assist in pulling off the the act, the heist, the crime. So we only felt that this person was powerful because other people kind of co-signed it around us. And so whenever you felt like, I don't think that's right, it's 20 people around you accepting it as right. So, so you either have to be strong or have a plan because it's not like, you know, you, you, you quit cold turkey, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people will say that they don't want to be the only one. They don't want to be the only one to have a differing view. They know all eyes are going to be on them. They're going to, you know, or or they're going to be seen as having something wrong with them. But it is true. If 10 people agree on something, it still doesn't make it true. If millions of people agree on something, it still doesn't make it true. And it's very hard, though, to be the lone voice. I do want to be able to get back to Sonia, you talking about how it got worse. And then for both of you to talk about how you left and why you left. Like, what was that point? where you just had reached 
your limit. Or for some people, it's when they were pushed out. You know, sometimes they they weren't even quite ready, but they were pushed out for one reason or another. So Sonia, let's go back to you for a moment and talk about how it got worse and then how you left. So it, it got worse when I volunteered to go work at the daycare. Um, I worked at the daycare. They got to the point where Nobody really seen me much. And my mom at that point had moved down to Virginia and she had came with three of my aunts that were from Maryland. And she was like, I want to see my daughter now, you know? So, um, my mom kind of seen it, you know, and they fought, <laughs> they fought. Um, so they had like the guard, they, at that point they had security guards at the doors and my mom like kind of pushed them out the way and was like, I want to see my daughter now. So they were like, your mom's here. Um, you need to go with her. So I left that day, went out to eat with my mom and things like that. And then I went back and then like I said, it got worse in like 2004 is when I first started um, with the daycare. And that's when there was another young lady who I used to babysit for while she would go out to the pastor's house. Um, he had came to my classroom. I mean, he had called, her husband had called and said, hurry up and get out of there. I'm going to kill this man. And I'm like, what? What is going on? So I grabbed my class and I ran to his office and um, I was like, what's going on? I mean, I was like, Calvin just called me and said, you know, he's going to kill you for me to hurry up and get out the building. So with, I, I'm telling you within minutes, I'll say within seconds, he said, he said a cold blue, a, a cold something. And they had that whole place shut down and he sent me home. I went home. Yeah, I went home. It wasn't within like minutes. That place was shut down. The whole daycare academy was completely shut down. He asked, he just kept asking me, what did he say? And I was like, he didn't say anything. He was like, you sure he didn't say? I spent at least 30 minutes or more with him repeatedly asking me, what did he say? And I was like, he didn't say anything to me. I was like, what kind of church is this? Like, he's about to blow you up. Like, basically, I'm saying, what's going on, you know? He was just like, don't worry about it. Just go on home. So I went home. You know, I'm not in leadership or anything. I went home or whatever. Um, and things got worse at that point. I think we all was in Bible study and he told us all that some things were going to happen. The news were going to come out. And when you know, things had already happened earlier that day, you know, and um, I still didn't know what happened. Like, I really didn't know um, the real truth. I mean, I know that I remember sitting in a living room with my kids and they were like, Ma, look. And they mentioned the lady's name. She's on TV. I was like, turn it off. Turn it off. And, you know, I did as told. We turned it off and we didn't even really even understand what was going on, which I wish that I would have listened at least. And then at that point, things got worse and worse and worse. My, um, he talked my husband into retiring. My husband retired um, from the military. And then we, li we lived in a hotel for a while. And so they had to literally pick, us, pick me up to go to work, to the daycare. And then they found out that we didn't have anywhere to live. We were living in a hotel. Then they put me in a ministry home, in a ministry home until like four or five families stay in there along with yours. It, it just got, like I said, it just got worse and worse and worse. And that would take a whole nother, uh, a whole nother show. What made me leave was I had got something called uterine fibroids and I was sick, like sick, sick. I was dilating like I was having a baby. I would dilate 10 centimeters and this man would tell, I would be in the, the rooms during service, just balled up, like balled up in a ball. And he would say um, to me, um, oh, you don't have no faith. Um, 
Oh, my husband even, he, he was so ignorant at the fact. Um, he didn't even come check on me. I remember one of the deacons saying, yo, Morris, your wife is balled up. She's in a whole lot of pain. You might want to take her to the hospital. And um, when he took me to the hospital, of course, I dilated 10 centimeters, like I was having a real baby or whatever. I end up going into the hospital. No one ever visit me. None of that. I got a phone call. State and one wise coming back because the, ch- the children of the daycare parents said, if, sh- if I don't come back, they weren't, they were taking the kids out of there. So um, I rushed my healing and went back to the daycare because I did um, care for the children a lot. It was a lot of children that weren't from the ministry that went to them, that needed lots of love and care. And I really loved being that I was the only one not getting paid. Um, I still had faith in God and I and I did it because I love the children. Prior to that, I'm gonna tell one more story and then I'll let Jay go. I had I never having forget having a stroke right in my classroom. I had a stroke right next to my classroom um, was the nurse's office. I went in the nurse's office and I'm like, something just don't feel right. Um, she goes and get the director of the daycare and she has me doing all these things that they have you do, smile and put your hands up. And I wasn't able to do none of that. At that point, I started crying. They called the um, Cheney and he told them to give me food because, of course, I'm not eating as well. So on top of all the other stress of raising money and all that other stuff, they had me lay down in the nurse's office while they were in meetings. About I remember like three, maybe four o'clock in the morning, um, leaving there. Now, my dad had a full-blown stroke. I go home, and that when I got up that morning, I had another stroke. I had no phone. I had no phone of calling. I never forget my son running, going door-to-door, asking them to call 911. I never forget it. And I remember my son being in the um, ambulance with me, and he was just praying, God, please don't let nothing happen to my mom. Because we were at that point, we weren't eating. My son would go to the blood bank to get blood just to feed myself and my daughter. It was bad. It was really, really bad. And so at that point was my wake-up call. When after I got out of the hospital from having the stroke, no phone call, no n- nothing, okay? Nothing from nobody. After I've worked for you for free all these years, not a flower, nothing, okay? So at that point, I'm sitting there and I'm like, Lord, help me. I have nothing. I have no food. I have no nothing. And I cried. Um, it makes me emotional because you do things. I did everything that I did for God. And I don't regret nothing that I've done because I did it unto God. I, I never forget sitting there with no food. I got out of the hospital. I didn't even have personal needs. I remember taking baking soda and making a paste to put it under my arms for deodorant. I remember um, my children, um, they didn't complain about what we didn't have or whatever. But I just remember us Never having nothing. Like you can go in the refrigerator. There's nothing. I remember like getting rice and opening up a can of uh, beef stew and throwing it over the rice and saying that was dinner. You know, things like that. Um, So it got to that point where I I woke up, you know. I wasn't allowed to be in meetings anymore. I only had, at that point, I had went to a couple of meetings. And my first meeting was, um, I walked in the the, 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 the office, and I don't know if Jay can re- um, relate to this, is they had a little, little, little office at that time. I, all I seen, and it frightened me so, was all these names on the wall that they were speaking curses. 
over even their children, speaking curses over children. Um, I speak that they um, be broke for 10 years over all these people who just left the ministry. And I, you know, me, I'm, I'm very bold. I'm quiet, but when you get me to that point, I'm very bold. And I raised my hand. I said, this is not right. Something's not right. He said, Morris is crazy. And they all laughed. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, Morris is crazy. And after that time, I was never allowed to go into another meeting. And that was my first meeting until I started getting sick. So when I started getting sick, and now I can't be in children's church anymore because, you know, children's church would just stay with the children all those hours. So now I'm in meetings and I'm witnessing like him going up to, I mean, we had to all stand in the front and he would give us a whole look down. So if we had like naps in the back of our head, he would be like, that's $25. If we had running in our stockings and it might be $15. If, if we had wrinkled clothes, of course we got wrinkled clothes. We just got out of here at four. I had to be back to daycare before 5.30. And it was just crazy, the stuff that I'm, I've seen. So I would be always the one to raise my hand and be like, oh my God, this is not right. It was um, me and a, um, another um, young man um, by the name of uh, Pastor Carl Young. He's a pastor now. And we would be the only two. And they, they would have people sign a petition. I'm not signing nothing. I would be the one. I'm not signing nothing. So, of course, I wasn't, a meet. I wasn't allowed to be in meetings. So, after my sicknesses occurred, back to back, back to back, I, I, um, I realized they didn't care nothing about me. Nothing about me. My mom died in the midst of all this. Um, my mom called me, called me. Um, my mom got tired. She had moved back to Rhode Island. She had sent back, sent for me. And I, my brother picked me up and I told him I was leaving. And he was like, I was already not like in leadership, but I was still part of the church. I was still going to the church. So I would, didn't, I would, didn't have able to see everything that everybody else seen. But I told him that I was going. He told me that I was going to die. If I leave, I was going to die. And I told him I came close to death. Two times since I've been in this ministry, I, I just begin to tell him I died at birth. If I haven't died yet, you know, that stuff. That, I told him that stuff don't scare me. It didn't scare me. So when I left, my mom died like five days later. She just died. Um, so um, when my husband came back to the funeral, I ended up going back home, back to Virginia. Um, and he told me my mom died because I was out of place. My mom died because I was out of place. Um, at that point, I was done. <laughs> I was done. I was done. I still worked at the daycare. Um, I got one paycheck, one paycheck out of all those years out of it. But then after that, I, I didn't stick around. I left. I was gone. At that point, I was gone. You, you're going to tell me that my mom died because I didn't, I wasn't at this church. My mind, my mom died because uh, I was out of place of being a missionary. That was the end after that. Right. Oh my goodness. All right. And there's more to it, but it, it take a whole nother, a whole nother. Oh uh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I just give I... you the bad version. The bad <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Wow. So you can only imagine if that was just sort of mm, part of the story. And so hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again and you can keep telling the story. It sounds like it's a very important thing also for you to be able to talk about, just to be able to have a chance to say it out loud, you know? I'm always talking about it. I'm, we're doing movements and everything. Um, I'm doing things here in Rhode Island. I, I'm I'm getting the word out. It makes me cry because there's still people there that I love a lot. Oh, I see. Got it. Got it. Right. Right. I mean, first of all, the the fact that your your kids just didn't complain like they 
they were hanging with you on this, just knowing you're all kind of making making your way, suffering, doing the best you could. Um, it is a terrifying feeling to not be able to provide for your children. But also when you were talking about, you know, the physical issues that you were having and you were saying you were dilated like you were giving birth. I don't know, people who haven't given birth <laughs> don't know how painful what you're describing is. And it is so intense. And the fact that you were not getting any sympathy, no one was coming by to see if you were okay. No one was making meals for you like they would in another ministry or a church or any kind of religious, or right? There'd be a whole meal train going. There would be so much show of support. And going to this idea that you were going to die once you left, oh no, on the contrary, you were going to die if you stayed. And that is just intense to think about, right? Because they, you couldn't be taken care of and you were having a lot of very severe health issues and there was no support for it. And you also financially were not going to be able to take care of yourself if you had a, a major medical issue. So no, that was a one-way ticket, unfortunately, to really your demise. It sounds also like that it had to reach that point shows how devoted you were and how much you wanted it to be something, right? Because it had to take all of these points of really the things that... And that's not uncommon that people say like, oh my goodness, look at all the things I just stuck around with and stuck around for, even though I was being treated in this way, even though all this was being taken away from me. I mean, that says something about the kind of person that you are, that you keep with your commitments, that you're hoping for the best, that, you know, but at some point, yeah, you just can't ignore it anymore. And and I'm so sorry, you know, the the other part that happens when someone is really abusive, they will always add insult to injury. So your mom dying, if that wasn't bad enough, then it was your fault that she died according to them, right? I mean, that is pouring salt in a wound. And what kind of person does that to someone else? But they had to make you seem like everything was your fault, even though you were just surviving, literally just surviving. Oh, unbelievable. I'm so glad you're free from that. Wow. Me too. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Oh my goodness. So then going back to Jay, so tell me a little bit about you leaving. What prompted it? What prompted it in short was again, going back to Sheree McClendon and her story, um, which is very widely known. She's, you know, we're on the same mission. She has her, her uh, own way of doing things. Uh, she was my, my wife at the time she confessed to me that she slept with the pastor. So in the interest of time, I want to kind of uh, kind of get through the overarching things that makes this a cult and not a ministry. Uh, people can make mistakes, right? A pastor can make a mistake and be unfaithful, you know, have some infidelity. We can forgive that as a reasonable person or group of people. This person was methodical and putting families, entire families, not just the woman in a position to, they feel that it is necessary either spiritually or more naturally, like a financially, you know, to, to sleep with this person. Um, in my, in my ex-wife's case, we spent so much time. This, uh, I started going in 2001 and the ministry grew and got uh, businesses. So you 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 hear uh, Sonia mentioned they had a daycare, they had a hair salon. My ex-wife, 
she was a hairstylist, right? So now she has her own salon and all that present day. But she had been doing hair since she was like 14 or something like that. So she had a gift of doing hair. Well, they had a, 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 you know, a thrift shop. Um, But the biggest thing, it had the daycare and the academy. And it's kind of how we got here today. But um, where we're at in our struggle, our, our, you, you know, um, what we're doing today, because all of these things, the, the daycare and the academy are still in existence. The daycare and academy comprise of children, of leaders and faithful members. And this person who really doesn't have a, a concept of time, like he just it's if you have Wednesday night, you know, Bible study, Bible study is supposed to start at seven. He shows up when he pleases. So if it's eight o'clock, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock, it'll go, it'll go, it'll go till one o'clock in the morning. Children have to be up. This is not a summertime thing. This is all the time. You're delirious. You're hungry. There, there are things that you're you're suffering from. But for me, what really suffered the most was time away from family, our bonding time, our gelling time, especially as a young couple. You know, at that point in life. My uh, Cherie was, you know, my ex-wife was trying to find herself like most young people, especially in a church that, you know, people, again, they're put in this position and their, their titles kind of equals how the level of anointing or how close they are to God or, you know, what are you you're doing things right if you have a, a title next to your name. And I remember going to. Bernard Cheney, this was the worst mistake that I ever could have done. I told him about problems that I was having with my wife at the time, thinking that I was doing the right thing because I wanted advice, wisdom from my spiritual leader on what to do. He responded, you know, I I have something special for Cherie. I want to work with her. And so a few weeks later, she got in a position to have a title. It wasn't a leadership title, but it was an assistant to him. It had men and women assistants that were called armor bearers, right? They have all these, it's all branding and marketing, really. So armor bearer, and we traveled a lot. And I remember I was part of the travel team. I was kind of like, you know, and this a veteran leader. And he said, hey, I want you to stay home. And, you know, for the kids and I'm going to have Cherie come on the road with me. And I remember uh, this was like in 03, 04, when she became an armor bearer, she got really private with her phone. And I remember touching her phone and she yelled at me, don't touch my phone. And this is before phones became like a part of you, a part of your person where you needed uh, security lock. So it's like, you know, before, you know, we would pick up each other's phone. It was nothing private, really. There was nothing there. You know, there were no social media apps or anything that did any communication that took place that you wouldn't or shouldn't know about. So hindsight being 2020, but that's when the infidelity started. And what happened was he would be like, uh, you know, tell her, Hey, I'm a man of God. And, um, you know, as an armor bearer, you will see the weaker side of me. And 
he would always put his sin, his shortcoming on you. I remember him saying, if my, if I ever get corrupt or my hands get, it gets dirty, it's because I'm dealing with dirty people. He said that. So as if he's spotless and perfect and clean, there, there, there are a lot of things he said that we, we were talking the other day that we let slide by. He said he was a SEAL team member. His man is very much out of shape. He said he got out of the military because of he had an enlarged heart. That's not something that's healthy. Um, I was in Navy. I was, you know, dealt with special warfare teams and, and things of that nature. It's a lot. It's hard. I went to swim school. Very difficult. Anyway, there are things that he said that we just let slide. And this is one of them. So she's thinking she's doing the right thing. And of course, it had to be kept private, kept secret. And in, in a way, I know, you know, based on how I felt and talking to her and some other people, it made you feel privileged, right? Because this person is talking to me and telling me things that he wouldn't tell anyone else. He utilized that. And, you know, eventually he convinced her that sleeping with him was something that God wants her to do. And, you know, even talking to her and we've talked all this out and she's given me permission to talk about all this. I want to make sure that your, your listeners and you know that. She was even able to deal with, she said it stopped. And what she noticed was he was looking at other women and he would ask her, you know, any other women who would want to be armor bearers and they're able to do this. And it, and she realized like after the second or third time that, oh, he's just a freak. He's not, you know, he, he doesn't, this is not to satiate some hunger that would keep him back from being the super spiritual leader that he needs to be. He's just, he just wants to have sex. And then things become clear because now we see you're putting, you know, people in a, a in a position to where it's not, it's, this is not a contract where, you know, this is a contract of adhesion. I have to do this because I, I, I have no choice. I won't eat or I won't feel, I won't get what I need from you because you placed me in a position that I'm dependent on hearing something from you. So Sheree, my ex-wife said, it wasn't a Sunday that would go by, you know, after church or something. It's like, you think your husband's going to miss you? You know, or I like what you have on and, you know, touching her. And she couldn't take that because at the end of the day, she still wanted church. She She wanted to get something from worship and she was getting, it was coming up empty. She was getting nothing. So she left and she was fighting, you know, of course, in between there, you know, I saw depression fall on her really bad. All of these things and me being, uh, you know, um, a family person, family oriented, she and I, we had our differences. I always felt like the lack of money and the lack of time really impacted us. And I remember this the, the, near the end of 2006, I had, you know, promised, I made a promise to myself I'm going to step down from leadership starting the beginning. I was going to put my resignation in for January 1st, 2007. And December, her cousins from Memphis came, packed her stuff up, and she left. So now I'm like, I'm just here. It's just me. And at the time, we had three three little girls. And she, you know, she took uh, our girls. And so I now I have no nothing here right now presently but the church. I was very angry, very upset, obviously, but she, I remember she told me, she ultimately broke down and said, you know, I slept with the pastor and he's not to be trusted. And my, my thing was, I came here with my family and I'm leaving with my family. 
So I, I realized by this time, this is 2007, I'd been going, I visited one time in 2000 and kind of became a member in 2001. So I'd been around and been in leadership for about five years at that time, four or five years at that time. So I seen all I needed to see and I, I figured out how this guy operated. And I realized that where people made the mistake of leaving, where hence putting the names on cursing these people and, you know, uh, making sure he drains you of all your money. Uh, if you tell him to leave, he's going to do everything. He's going to give you, uh, Sonia mentioned, oh, he gave my mom $300. That's how he kept you going. He took everything away from you and gave you morsels in comparison to what you gave back. But you're so, you're so far down in the dumps. It makes, made you feel like you got a blessing. But that $300 is not even your car note. That's not even, you know, you, your, your kids are hungry, need diapers or, or anything like that. But it's more than what you had before he gave it to you. So you feel special. It, make you, it made you feel like something. Even in reality, it's nothing, right? It's nothing in comparison to what, you, what he gave you. So they would all, you know, people would all come and say, hey, uh, I know what you did. You slept with my wife. My wife told me. Or I know that you're, you're using money on drugs and alcohol to seduce women. And he's like, no, it's not like that. You know, give me some time, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, he'll take that information and he'll go in private or call a group meeting or go into leadership meeting and say, God told me this person is about to fall off and that they're my enemy. And so the first few times it happened, just like how he says it, because we're not aware of this is what's what's going on until a number of people leave. And eventually, even though you're you're supposed to be cursed if you talk to someone who leaves the ministry, I was never like that. I talked to people who left the ministry and I'm like, OK, you, you, you came and told this person you were leaving when they said, you know, before you left. He wanted to give you two weeks, just wait two weeks so then he can go in the next day or that day in a leadership meeting and say, God told me that this person is going to fall off. And it strengthens your trust or your belief that this person is a prophet and they're here from God and that these people are haters and they don't want to see him succeed. And because they don't want to see him succeed, they don't want to see this ministry succeed and it affects you. So I told him nothing. It was, I was part of the travel team and uh, every Wednesday night after the Bible study that would be at that cult, there was also a church set up in North Carolina and their Bible study was on Thursday. And so we would bring our stuff because remember it runs so late that no need to even go home. Take your because you're not going to leave. It, we it was a multi-purpose room that doubled as the academy's uh, what do you call it? auditorium. So you had to put chairs. That was a lot of work, a lot of work, right? A lot of sacrifice and a lot of work. And so you might as well just bring your bag with you. Before that Wednesday morning, I packed my bag because I knew I told my ex-wife I'm leaving and everything like that. Um, because I again I came with my family. I'm leaving with my family. And I packed my bag. In reality, that had all the things that I wanted to take with me. Everyone was so used to just bringing bags. Say, put your bags in this room. I asked her, uh, my my ex-wife's aunt and uncle. I said, hey, can you give me a ride to Miss Vera? Miss Vera is my, you know, my ex-wife's mother. And but they at the time they live right next door to each other. And I don't think they even knew that. And they never saw me again. That cult never saw me again. Now, you may say, well, wow, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is I was missing. No accountability. He didn't hear from God that one of his closest deacons in terms of 
uh, what I was doing, providing security, counting money, or, you know, all of these things, you know, doing, doing the runs and working full time, you know, volunteering full time and getting pennies for it, but working full time would just up and, and leave. And furthermore, I didn't have any animosity, at least showing it, even though I planned this. I never showed any animosity. So they had no reason to b- believe that I left for, you know, any bad purposes or whatever the case may be. So it's a, it was a little, you know, fun to know that he couldn't spread lies. He couldn't. What, what it also did was put other leaders on notice and other people who were kind of faithful to the ministry. Because it's like, well, if J. Cole could leave and there was no explanation, no nothing. Maybe, you know, I have the strength to lead. And so I was told, you know, from talking to former leaders and, and people that, yeah, we just don't know. It's like a whole month almost where we felt like it was missing, like on the back of a milk carton type of missing. Because, again, my, my ex-wife wasn't there. So there was nobody there to actually say, where is this guy at? And so when they finally found out where I was at, I had actually taken the key to the townhouse that he used to have sex with other women in um, that I actually was staying in because I was in what you call a ministry home that uh, Sonia had basically is a house that they own to put families up who gave everything. But by, by the way, which, you know, is and this is part of the active investigation that's going on right now for that, that cult and the leader Bernard Cheney, a lot of people were military and uh, there are a lot of people getting out and they were getting out because of their disability. And um, the military would give you a severance, thousands of dollars. So I remember getting about $20,000 when I got out of the military. And I gave him the ministry, rather. I gave the ministry about 15000 right? But I didn't just hand over a check. I was told to cash the money, get cash the check, get money, and then give it to him. And so did everybody else. Now, this is just one person, and I was only in for a little over six years. There are people who are getting out 15 years. Sonia can tell you, uh, her husband, he probably got out and probably got a check. I didn't know it about the check, but he was, it's like 25, he was in, in the Navy for 20, about 25, 26 years. Mm-hmm. 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 There were a lot of people like that. So imagine if mine, I was in for six years and I got a check for $20,000. Imagine someone who was in for 15 years. Right. Their check. People, they're giving 60, 80, $100,000, converting it in a way that cannot be traced and then giving it to the ministry, which funded his habits, funded him soliciting women, pay, indirectly paying for intimacy with them. It, it, it empowered him, you know, emboldened him. And you could see his sickness made everything worse. That, that you know it, it was it, it was it was like a cancer and everything worse. What Sonia mentioned about a man coming in and threatening his life was a woman who went to the local news authorities and said that this person kind of brainwashed her and told her that hey you should sleep with me. You know, gave her you know positions and, and this person I, I have no reason to think that anyone else had any affair. They just wanted to please God. And he used that against us. And so, it, you know, the more money, he, he, he was smart in that, you know, begin to open up these businesses. But these businesses were just places to put people 
to keep them there and and keep money coming in. But that the the control came with uh you were a volunteer and you got paid whenever he gave you what he felt you deserved. And then turned around and they had a system where if you're a leader, you had to to pay fees. And if you if you did something wrong, you had to pay fines. So let's say he gave you five hundred dollars at the end of the uh, week. You got to pay one hundred dollars because you're a leader or seventy dollars because you're a leader. And he will find anything to find you over. I, I, even if something good happened to you that should not have happened to anyone else, he'll listen. He's very attentive. And he's like, weren't you supposed to be on a fast? Which, by the way. We were just on an eternal fast. So you just stopped eating and you ate whenever he allowed you to eat. Whenever, But in the alternative, you can also pay to get off the fast. So, hey, you put people on a fast. You give $500. For $200, you can come off the fast. $200. And you've already paid another $100 for your fee to be leadership. Oh, by the way, don't forget to pay your tithes and offerings. By the time it's all said and done, you're lucky if you got $50, which you have to pay to get into the praise party, which is $7 a piece and to feed your kids. So if you got three kids, that's $21. Then you, that's $28. Your spouse is $35. You have $15 left. It's a cycle. It's incredible. I mean, yeah, you always want to be a little suspicious when it's also only a cash only business. And you know, why are they not wanting to have a paper trail? But yeah, that you're given something minimal amount and then you have to give it back. And then also it sounds like you also had to give more than you had. And, and sometimes you're left without anything and probably owing. So I know we need to finish up, but I, I think it it is so incredible that you both went through this experience. I'm so glad you have each other too, to talk to about this and, and other people who have left that there's the community that can keep you connected through telling these stories and healing from those experiences. But I just want to say for both of you, I mean, you're, you're people who, who jump in and are so devoted and that should never be taken advantage of because you really wanted to be a part of something in a special way and rise up within that community because you cared, because you believed that this was something good for you, for your family, for, for the people around you. And so your intentions were so good, but yeah, not having the mind of a sociopath, you don't know what you're up against and you don't know that you have this puppy master. And it is so hard when it suddenly becomes clear because you feel like, oh, it's like this ill, like sickness, like you've been infected. And it feels like you need to take a shower from that kind of being around that kind of personality. I am so happy that you both live through it, that you are now able to tell the tale that you see that life is better <laughs> outside of it and that you're using your voice to help. I mean, now, you know, you're able to really have a ministry that really is about spreading the truth, but also not only education, but prevention, which is quite amazing, right? What to watch out for. Those are really important messages. It's been so good to talk to both of you and you're both really strong. You've come through a lot and I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Where can people find out about what you're doing now? Okay. I'm glad that you asked that. And part of the now is that uh, even as far back, because there's this different eras. When I came in, I was in one of the, like the second era where they moved to a building uh, an academy was developed and established in Virginia. And unfortunately, it's a very low standard, at least at that time. And staff was comprised of leaders and other folks who 
to be quite honest, they weren't qualified. And as a result, it led to uh, neglect and abuse issues in that academy. A lot of stuff went on, um, which really kind of prompted me to get involved. When I heard Sonia's story, Sonia lost a daughter a couple of years back. And in her journal, she wrote about the abuse. Now, years later, I, I, you know, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm, I don't really, you know, didn't have a, a connection with anyone. I heard Sonia's story. And being an attorney, I knew that a journal, when she talked about that abuse, provides strong credibility in court. And so I was disgusted about what happened with the children. There was a, I, I was not privy to any of that because Bernard Cheney knew where to put certain people at. He would not let me around the academy or daycare or neither my children because my grandmother was a teacher. And so what we found was there was a lot of abuse and neglect that went unchecked, was told to be swept under the rug and has affected these kids that have now are now adults present day. I'm tasing children, telling them they're going to go to hell, children being molested and touched in the uh, the bathrooms and, and covering it up because it's a leader's kid or they don't want to bring a we don't want a, a, a reproach to be brought on the church. So please don't report it. You know, all of these things that were just antithetical to what we would expect from a church. And so uh, this this uh, daycare and academy is actually still in existence, still going on. And there are people who are trapped there. They're trapped financially, they're emotionally, they're spiritually dependent and really brainwashed by this person. And so we have a petition. You can find us on, I think it's change.org. If you type in Bernard Cheney, you will find it. At this point, we have so much information out. We also have our colleague who is not with us, who is our, she's like our, our pistol. She is Shawana Coleman. She is, uh, she is relentless. Um, she has a podcast series called The Unbelievable House. It's a limited series. And if you, if you, even if you don't feel like reading or trying to, you can go to The Unbelievable House and you can hear stories like, uh, myself and, and Sonia, I'm not sure if you were ever on the podcast. I think I believe you were, but there are other members. You know, after a while, if, if five or 10 people say something, it's questionable. But when 50 people all say the same thing, all we want, if it, you know, these, these leaders, former leaders, and this cult leader is saying nothing happened and, and all of this. It, well, if it's true, then, then submit to an investigation. Clear yourself. We're pushing for that. How, how people can um, help is simply to, to call the Commonwealth, yes, attorney, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Commonwealth Attorney General, and just say, hey, I hear that there's abuse that has occurred or is occurring at an academy that is ran by this church. Um, and also there's a one of the former leaders has now left the church but opened the church with the same platform, same, I, I mean, it's like they took a blueprint and, you know, copied it and, and started over. And, and we believe it's to get the heat off of what's going on now because we've had marches. You know, we've gone to the person's, of course, to the, the, the church, going to the person's house, you know, legally, lawfully. That's how you can find our story out there. We're out there. I know that um, there's more that needs to be said, but that'll be for another time.
as far as my daughter and how she passed and how every how this all came together. Yeah, because I was going to actually ask about your kids. So let's do that. Let's talk again so that we can find out more about your lives now and how the people who you love came through that time as well. All right. It was really good and important for us to be talking about this and and to be continued. Thank you so much, Rachel. Yes. Thank you so much, Rachel. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Jay and to Sonia. What a powerful conversation. What a difficult thing to listen to. And so, so very important. Jay had a chance to talk about his experiences and Sonia had a chance to talk about hers. But you just got the feeling that there was so much more there. I hope they have a chance to come back and talk more about what they went through. I think also for Sonia, there's a lot there's a lot that she went through with her family. And again, so many more of the details that because of time we had to leave out. So I'll be sure to be back in touch with them to be back on so that they can continue talking, not only about what happened to them, but where they are now in the process of trying to get some justice. I think it is so important to look at the fact that here, You have a pastor who runs something that's very structured, who calls himself a pastor, a prophet, an apostle, has lots of very lofty titles, has the ability to do what they call deliverance, who can do healing, who can help people get past trauma. But as we've heard, what was happening while this pastor was saying that he could help people get past trauma was that people were getting traumatized while in devotion to him and while in devotion to this group. That's not uncommon in cultic groups because they say one thing and do another. You can find out a lot, in fact, a lot more about someone by seeing how they walk the walk, not just how they talk the talk. So if a person in charge of you, of a church, of anything you're involved in, says that they will provide you with healing, but they also let you go hungry, then they don't care about your safety, about your health, about your comfort, or about your healing truly. If someone says that they can help you, if they can deliver you, if they can make sure that you have a good life and a happy life, and at the same time, there are so many secrets that you suddenly need to be keeping for them because of them, then there's a lot that they're wanting you to partner with them in hiding. And it is not for you to hide someone else's bad behavior. Also, people who are there, who are helping, who are doing what they can, who are really on the up and up and who are honest, are also not the same ones who tell you to keep things secret. There are many people who say that God speaks through them. There are so many warning signs here that I want to just highlight that a lot of people will feel they can't argue with someone who says that they were given the message to give to you by God. Well, how do you say, well, then that's wrong? What I want you to be able to do in that moment is kind of look at your life. Look at how your life has been, how it has transformed since being in connection with this person. 
And I want you to look for two things. If someone doesn't truly care about you, then they don't mind when you suffer and they won't have sympathy for your suffering. They won't care if you're hungry, if you haven't had the chance to get to a doctor. They will just need for you to keep working hard to be in service for them, to keep their whatever it is going. And that if you do come to them to talk to them about how you're suffering, here's the second thing to watch out for. Again, so the first thing is really noticing how they walk the walk and not talk the talk. Really, at the end of the day, how your life has become worse because of them and how they don't care and how they're not intervening, how they're not providing you with the opportunities, with the finances, with the resources to be able to keep your life good and safe and happy. But then... Very often, people who want to keep getting away with putting you in harm's way and just not caring about you will talk about how suffering is godly, how it is holy, how it is like Jesus, how it is that you are supposed to be showing how absolutely pure you are by your suffering. So there are people who will argue with me about this, I know, but I think there's already so much suffering in the world. There's already so much that people have to deal with, with illness that comes your way, with a child who gets sick, with a parent who you've lost, with just noticing what's happening in the world. You don't need people to be adding to your suffering and then be telling you that it is somehow a mark of honor. There, again, is plenty to go around there is plenty that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So when you devote yourself to anyone, they should be supporting the suffering you're already going through, giving you their support, their strength, their resources, a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of being protected. They should never be adding to your suffering. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow.com at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.